Good morning to all EB members who have joined us here in Geneva, and good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to all member states, participants, and observers online. On Monday, January 24th, World Health Organization Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus spoke to the organization's executive board, noting what felt like an unbelievable milestone. This Sunday marks two years since I declared the public health emergency of international concern, the highest level of alarm under international law over the spread of COVID-19. Two years of this waking nightmare. At the time, there were fewer than 100 cases and no deaths reported outside China. Two years later, almost 350 million cases have been reported and more than 5.5 million deaths. And we know these numbers are an underestimate. And for all the talk about Omicron being milder than earlier variants, it's making its mark. On average, last week, 100 cases were reported every three seconds. Since Omicron was first identified just nine weeks ago, more than 80 million cases have been reported to WHO. More than were reported in the whole of 2020. Far from being over, it can sometimes feel like this pandemic is just gathering steam and might never end. And in fact, some people have suggested we should stop trying to fight it. Gabriasis acknowledges the world will have to learn how to live with this virus someday. But learning to live with COVID cannot mean that we give this virus a free ride. It cannot mean that we accept almost 50,000 deaths a week from a preventable and treatable disease. It cannot mean that we accept an unacceptable burden on our health systems when everyday exhausted health workers go once again to the front line. It cannot mean that we ignore the consequences of long COVID, which we don't yet fully understand. It cannot mean that we gamble on a virus whose evolution we cannot control nor predict. A virus whose evolution we cannot control or predict. And Gabriasis says it's dangerous to assume Omicron will be the last COVID variant to have worldwide impact. On the contrary, globally, the conditions are ideal for more variants to emerge. Why? Well, there are billions with a B of unvaccinated people in the world. The World Health Organization represents 192 countries, what it calls member states. As it stands, 86 member states across all regions have not been able to reach last year's target of vaccinating 40% of their populations. And 34 member states, most of them in Africa and the Eastern Mediterranean region, have not been able to vaccinate even 10% of their populations. 85% of the population of Africa 
is yet to receive a single dose of vaccine. That means more than a billion unvaccinated people in Africa alone. Now, if you're like me, a triple-vaxxed American mom living in a suburb, you may not think that has anything to do with you. But unvaccinated populations are where variants circulate. It's where they mix and match and make new variants to challenge your vaccines. The gap between countries like the United States and low- and middle-income countries struggling to vaccinate even a small percentage of their populations is a threat to every single country on the planet. We simply cannot end the emergency phase of the pandemic unless we bridge this gap. So how do we do that? How do we bridge that gap? How do we get vaccinations into populations that don't have the capacity to make mRNA vaccines? They don't have the money to order them from Pfizer or Moderna. They don't have any freezers in remote areas to store them, even if they could get them. Well, we might have an answer straight out of Texas. From Texas Public Radio and the Texas Newsroom, this is Petri Dish. I'm Bunny Petrie. Today, a conversation with Dr. Peter Hotez of Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development in Houston about his team's new vaccine, Corbivax. Dr. Hotez has become one of the faces of the pandemic. The bowtie scientist has been all over television and radio, and on this podcast, too, explaining viruses generally and this virus specifically. He's taught the nation about vaccine science. And after people started getting their first COVID vaccine doses, he warned that two shots probably wouldn't be enough, that boosters would likely be necessary. And he was right. Hotez has spent much of his career focused on infectious diseases that have an outsized impact on poor people. Well before he became a go-to expert on COVID-19, he wrote a book called Forgotten People, Forgotten Diseases, The Neglected Tropical Diseases and Their Impact on Global Health and Development. When I started interviewing him a decade ago, it was often about these neglected diseases that most affected the ignored poor and his work on vaccines that might give billions of people a fighting chance against them. It's this singular focus on disadvantaged populations that's driven Hotez and his team to develop a COVID vaccine that would be cheap and easy to produce. Of course, I wanted to hear all about it, and so I Zoomed him, and I started our conversation by asking Dr. Hotez to explain to me how the world beyond the U.S. has experienced the pandemic. It's been pretty devastating. We have, we, and it'll take us years to figure out the true death toll and burden of disease. Some some people say upwards of 13 million deaths globally and still still going up. We're still in it, right? And so um, India got decimated, even though the official number is around half that, 6 million. Some people say there maybe is that many lives lost in India alone. India has been battered by COVID-19. And Hotez says that's why it was eager to partner up with the Texas team to develop a vaccine that would be safe and effective, like the mRNA vaccines, but could be mass-produced cheaply and easily. That is what we now know as Corbivax. 
It's a two-dose vaccine, but it's not an mRNA vaccine like Pfizer or Moderna. Corbivax is an old-school protein subunit vaccine. India's version of the Food and Drug Administration recently approved Corbivax for an emergency use authorization. So this recent release of the vaccine in India, where it's known as Corbivax, is a partnership between our Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development. Um, that's co-headed by myself and my science partner for the last 20 years, Mary Elena Batazzi, with one of India's big vaccine producers known as Biological E, and the vaccine is known as Corbivax. But keep in mind, that's not the only one. We've also now licensed the vaccine. Also, no patent, no strings attached to Indonesia, to an organization known as Biopharma, to Bangladesh, and SEPTA, to Botswana, uh, Immunity Bio. So the difference is we're not trying to make money on this one. We're trying to uh, get the world vaccinated by having it produced locally all over the world. Wait, what? Not trying to make money? No. HOTES says Corbivax is available to any country that can produce it for free. Like he said, no strings attached. And that's by design. So what we do is in our Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development, we developed the the prototype vaccine. We discovered the vaccine. It built on technology we've been developing for SARS and MERS, which are other coronavirus vaccines, uh, which for which were funded by the National Institutes of Health to develop. And then when the COVID-19 sequence hit, we just flipped our program over to COVID-19 and made a vaccine is the same way we've made other vaccines. We've spoken before, Bonnie, about our neglected tropical disease program for vaccines. And, and all of those were made, you know, with low cost in mind and simple delivery. So that's all we know how to do is make straightforward vaccines, older technology, easy to deliver. And this checks all the boxes for it. So we transferred the technology to these developing country vaccine manufacturers. We didn't try to, you know, put any intellectual property on it. I always like to say when your house is on fire and you can only make one call, you don't call a lawyer, you call you call the fire department. So, so we're the fire department and no strings attached. And we actually help in the co-development. We actually help them to facilitate it to ensure they're successful. How can you do that? Well, as I say, this is an older technology, same technology used to make the hepatitis B vaccine or similar technology. And so it's a recombinant protein. So, you know, if you remember from your high school biology, DNA is the genetic material of the cell. It's in the nucleus. It makes it transcribes into RNA. RNA goes into the cytoplasm and the cytoplasm then makes the protein. The older way to do that was to genetically engineer yeast, in our, in our case, and through microbial fermentation. Um, it, growing up in a bioreactor, like making beer instead of um, making alcohol, it's making the recombinant protein. So it's a vegan vaccine, actually, as opposed to the RNA, which is upstream and, and, and or some of the other technologies that use mammalian or even human cells in the process. This doesn't. So no animal protein, no, no human cells. Um, and because of that, it's kind of interesting. We're, I'm getting quite a number of emails, as so is Mary Elena, every day now from people to say, hey, doc, I'm not getting that RNA vaccine, but we'll take your vaccine because we trust it because it's older technology that, my, that I already gave to my kids. And I say, well, you know, just go ahead, get your RNA vaccine um, because 
because you need that vaccine. And our vaccine, we have no path right now for the U.S. because we have no U.S.-based manufacturer. We have no U.S. government support. So that's the reality. So get what you can. I asked Dr. Hotez to elaborate a bit on the situation in the U.S. Why was he unable to get support here to develop the vaccine? And there are people who claim they aren't getting COVID vaccines because mRNA vaccines are a totally new technology, and that makes them a little bit nervous. So it seems to me you might be able to reach at least some of these people with a vaccine type that's been around for a while. It's all, the U.S. strategy is all totally RNA-focused at this point. It was since that way since the beginning for Operation Warp Speed. You know, it was all about the pharma companies, all about um, cutting-edge technologies rapidly immunizing the U.S. population. There was uh, never, um, you know, the, the fact, you know, you've, but my contention was, well, even though you can move a little faster in the beginning, if you're going to vaccinate the world, this is the technology that's made locally all over. So if you're serious about vaccinating the world, also invest in ours. And I can never make that case either from the U.S. government or the other G7 countries. Could that change? In principle, yeah. In principle, you know, I think it could help close the vaccine hesitancy gap. But we just don't have a path here in, here in the U.S. for it. We don't have a U.S. manufacturing partner. We don't have any U.S. government support. So, so for now, what's not going to happen? When Petri Dish continues, Dr. Hotez has called Corbivax a uniquely Texas vaccine. And that has something to do with Tito's vodka and other Texas entities stepping up. He'll explain. First, though, on Friday, January 28th, there will be a new episode of another outstanding podcast from Texas Public Radio called 24-7. Here's a little about the show. I'm Kitty Isley. Over the past few years, I talked to friends and experts about how to care for my dad as he got older. The conversations were frank and intimate. Every week or two, there's a there's a new normal. There's something else lost that we have to now kind of get used to. So it's just been kind of one thing after another you know, series of, of losses. Join me for stories of caring for our elders at 24-7, a podcast about caregiving. Find us at tpr.org slash 247 or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Petri Dish. Dr. Peter Hotez is based in Houston. He co-directs Texas Children's Hospital's Center for Vaccine Development and is dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine. So when it became clear he was not going to get government funding to develop his team's vaccine against COVID-19, he reached out to other Texans for support. It was really tough. You know, the beginning of the pandemic, we had to raise the money for it. We did it through Texas-based philanthropies. We got the Clayburg Foundation, the Dunn Foundation, the MD Anderson Foundation, um, Tito's Vodka supported us. So they came to our rescue and, and also a New York Foundation as the JPB Foundation, a couple of smaller ones. That's how we did it. You know, we did it, raised about six, seven million dollars, and that was enough to pay our scientists to make the prototype vaccine and get all the reagents in and work with BioE to transfer the technology in Indonesia and everywhere else. And so I think it'll break a record for the uh, most cost-efficient uh, development of a vaccine that's happened in modern times. 
So big Texas donors and a handful of donors from other places made this vaccine happen on the cheap. Now, cost efficiency was a huge priority for Hotez's team. If you want low- and middle-income countries to be able to use your thing, whatever that thing may be, they have to be able to afford the thing. Why is Corbivax so inexpensive? Uh, part of it is it's just easy. it's an older technology. So over the decades, people have learned how to scale it up for production. So there's no limit to the amount you could produce. It's cheap. Um, this will probably be a $2 vaccine um, as opposed to a much higher cost for the others. And um, simple refrigeration, no freezer chain requirement. Um, sit. Probably one of the best safety track records of any vaccine because you know, it's similar to hepatitis B vaccine that we give to infants currently. So if you were to design the ultimate global health vaccine for COVID, this is the one going on the checklist that checks all the boxes. So do you get what you pay for here, as in is the cheaper vaccine less effective? Hotez says studies in India have found it works pretty well. Well, it you know, we, we know it in terms of virus neutralizing antibodies and T cells and the level of virus neutralizing antibody and T cell responses are like, say, it'll likely be in the 80 to 90 percent range. So pretty good. But this is where things get a little bit murky and why not everyone is on board with Corbivax, at least not yet. That's because the human trials have not yet been published. A New York University clinical assistant professor of biology named Joseph Osmondson told the Washington Post that given the lack of public data from phase three clinical trials, Corbivax is, quote, healthcare for lower and middle income countries that we would never accept here. I followed up with Osmondson and he elaborated on his concerns. He told me it's not the vaccine that he's critical of. He says his concerns are all about transparency. He says it's simply essential that any vaccine anywhere in the world is supported by publicly accessible data on how effective it is and how safe it is. Corbivax has none, he says. Hotez counters that 3,000 people have participated in trials of this vaccine. Yeah, so all of the human trials are done in India by biologically phase one, phase two, phase three trials. And that's what led to the, that that led to the emergency use authorization. Now, Hotez says as far as making the trial data accessible to the public, according to BioE, phase one and phase two are in the final draft for publication. It'll publish data from the phase three trials sometime after those first two phases are published. Hotez also hopes to expand trials of the vaccine to locations all over the world. Right. So the point is we're trying now to work with the World Health Organization to help us do some introduction studies. So not just in India, but, you know, some African countries and Asian countries and Latin American countries introduce it and to confirm the effectiveness and get it out to the world. And because we're in a hurry, if if we're going to stop the next variant from emerging this summer, like it did last year, um, we need to vaccinate the world now and uh, can't screw around waiting another two years. Which brings us back to the need for a vaccine like this one as we begin to see the other side of the Omicron surge. We think it's essential, right? I mean, because we need 9 billion doses of vaccines for the world's low and middle income countries, and this, including those in the Southern Hemisphere. And 
to get to 9 billion, we're not going to do that with mRNA or adenovirus alone. We're going to need older technologies like ours that we know we could scale to that level. So BioE is producing a billion doses and and perhaps Indonesia or Bangladesh can do the same. And so it's going to make a big dent in this pandemic. Hotez mentioned earlier in the show that Corbivax works in the same way as vaccines that people are already familiar with, like the hepatitis B vaccine that infants get or the pertussis vaccine that kids get. Corbivax takes a harmless piece of the COVID spike protein, a protein subunit, and introduces it to your immune system, which then learns to recognize the spike protein as an invader and learns how to fight it. So anywhere hep B vaccines, for example, are made can be fairly quickly scaled to make Corbivax. Hotez adds that with the mRNA vaccines, like the Pfizer and Moderna shots that most of us have gotten, protection is waning in the face of variants more quickly than he expected. So the world really needs some additional tools in the old toolkit. Even I was surprised at how poorly the mRNA vaccines held up because, you know, since January of last year, I was saying, Bonnie, it's not one and done or two and done, but it could be three and done. So because you wait after those first two doses, six months to a year, then you boost, and that's what should give you durable protection. And that's, that's true for other vaccines. But to my disappointment, it looks like against Omicron, once you're a few months out from the from the booster, you're vulnerable again. I mean, you still have some protection against hospitalization, but in terms of symptomatic illness, you're still vulnerable. So that was very disappointing. So, so I think it means that, um, one, it do we have to redouble our effort to stop new variants from emerging globally? And that's his concern right now, echoing who executive director Tedros Adnum Ghebreyesus' concern, a new variant or several emerging in unvaccinated corners of the world, while so much of the population is still completely vulnerable to severe disease from the coronavirus. Well, I've I've laid down the gauntlet with the World Health Organization and other organizations. I said, guys, you got to do this by over the next six months if you're serious about stopping a next big variant from the summer. And I know, and then people say, well, it's not possible. And I say, well, of course it's possible. We've done it for polio. We've done it for measles. We've done it for smallpox. But, you know, you've got to have that. You've got to have audacious goals if you're going to make a difference. Back to why a triple-vaxxed suburban American mom like me should care about whether people in low- to middle-income countries are vaccinated against COVID. After all, I'm likely protected against severe disease. My daughter's protected. My friends are. Why should I give the vaccine status of people on the other side of the world a second thought? Well, there's several reasons. One, aside from the obvious humanitarian interest, right, and that's the right thing to do. But also your immunity is waning pretty quickly. Those RNA vaccines are not holding. And and Omicron, even if you've been infected, is not producing durable immunity. So you're by the summer, you're going to be vulnerable to the next variant coming in. And the U.S. needs a plan. Right now, it doesn't have a plan for that. But in the meantime, let's vaccinate the world to diminish the likelihood that we'll get one of those new variants. Right. So several publications have called Corbivax a potential pandemic game-changer. Does Hotez agree with that hot take? 
I certainly hope it will be, um, and I think it can be. And uh, as long as we can continue to get global cooperation for it, I think it will be. So we're very excited about you know, having this opportunity to make a difference. With the emergency use authorization in place, the Indian government has ordered 300 million doses of Corbivax. BioE, the vaccine manufacturer, has already produced 250 million doses and ultimately plans to produce more than 1 billion doses this year, Hotez says. And vaccine manufacturers in Indonesia, Bangladesh, and Botswana also plan to produce their own versions of Corbivax, which they will own, no strings attached. So most of us who work on and listen to this show, I think understandably so, have been focused on this pandemic as, you know, a a personal thing or as an American event. Sometimes we may look to Canada or Europe to see how things are going there, but we don't really spend a lot of time thinking about the pan of the pandemic. Pan is everyone. It's the whole world. So remember those stats listed by the WHO Director General at the start of the show? 34 WHO member states have not been able to vaccinate even 10% of their populations. 85% of the population of Africa is yet to receive a single dose of vaccine. That's billions of people. That's billions of opportunities for this wily virus to change, to outwit your vaccines and mine. That's billions of reasons this pandemic will soon enter its third year. I hate that I'm framing this as a what's-in-it-for-me scenario. Like Dr. Hotez said, making it a global priority to vaccinate people in struggling countries is just the right thing to do even if people in higher-income countries got nothing out of it. But the fact is, we're all sick of this pandemic. We all want this, this seismic upheaval in our lives to settle. We all want this undulating wave of daily death from a preventable virus to stop. We all want this pandemic to end. But the fact is, it won't end anywhere until it ends everywhere. This episode of Petri Dish was produced by Dallas Williams and me and edited by Rachel Osher-Lindley. Music and sound design by Jacob Rosati. TPR's news director is Dan Katz. Petri Dish was created by Fernanda Camarena, Dan Katz, and me, and is a production of TPR and the Texas Newsroom, a collaboration of public radio stations across Texas and NPR. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon.